Thank you, worship team. Good morning. Good to see you today. You know, there are many famous and infamous people that are known by a descriptive name, an epithet. There are, there are character traits that get pointed out about them, and then they're known for that forever, basically. You've, people like Alexander the Great, Attila the Hun, Richard the Lionhearted, and others. And they pick out one prominent character trait about them, uh, one that they've displayed, and they become known for that. But with Jesus, one isn't enough. I mean, so many things come to mind when we think of Jesus. You could say Jesus the Great, Jesus the Awesome, Jesus the Holy, Jesus the Good. You could say Jesus the King, Jesus the Lord, Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Way, Jesus the Truth, Jesus the Life. You could also say Jesus the Merciful. It fits perfectly because we see it over and over again in Scripture. And today we're going to see Jesus the Merciful. Our problem is we are often unmerciful. But turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. And when you find that, please stand with me to read God's Word. We'll be reading verses 29 through 34. And today we are going to see two men who seek mercy, a crowd that withholds it, and a Savior who freely gives it. We'll also see what God wants us to do about it. Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you are so merciful to us. Thank you, Lord, that you open blind eyes. Even now, Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So what does God want us to see in this passage? No pun intended. What does God want us to see in Matthew 20, verses 29 through 34? I think the thing that God wants us to see is that our sovereign God is merciful. That Jesus, the sovereign king, is merciful and he shows us mercy so that we would be merciful. So that we, too, would show mercy. Now, Jesus had defined mercy with a story earlier in this chapter about the the laborers and the vineyard and and a, a, a landowner that gives much more than is, than is uh, deserved. He has, 
He has told the story of the unforgiving servant who should have had mercy. So he has explained and defined mercy really with parables and with stories. But now he is showing mercy by his deeds, by what he actually does. So the first thing we see in this passage are two men who seek mercy. Verses 29 and 30. Now they were leaving Jericho. Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho. You're familiar with the, the name Jericho and the town. It was the home of Jesus' ancestor Rahab. It was a day's journey from Jerusalem. And it says that a large crowd followed. There were many pilgrims going from Galilee up to Jerusalem. And they were going for the feast, the feast of Passover. They were on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho to Jerusalem. It was really the final approach to Jerusalem. There was a winding road that would go 15 miles that climbs 3,000 feet through dry desert. It would take you six to eight hours of uphill climb to get there. And so they probably wanted to get there before dark. They probably left early. And this was a road that was known for highway robbers. Most likely, though, with the large crowds, it would make it safer. They probably weren't in danger, plus they had Jesus with them. That always helps. What you might not know about Jericho is that there were two Jerichos in that day. There was the ruins of the old uninhabited city, and then about a mile away there was the new Jericho, this oasis that Herod had built for himself it was actually destroyed in 31 BC by an earthquake, but it was rebuilt by Herod. It had three palaces on 25 acres. It was lavish. There were gardens and porticos and a swimming pool, and it was, there was connected by a flight of stairs and a huge bridge across a river leading to a reception hall and a gymnasium and colonnaded courtyards and a large, lavish bathhouse. It was opulent. It was, it was like... You know, Las Vegas without the gambling. It was like, it was like Palm Desert Oasis Resort. They had horse races and boxing. They had a theater, musical shows, and Herod would spend the cold Jerusalem winters there. In fact, Josephus uh, tells us that even when it was cold and snowing in Jerusalem, it would be warm and nice in Jericho. There, were fre- there was fresh waters, there was fruit trees. There, it was known as the city of palms. There were many palm trees. And so Jericho was a beautiful place, and it would have been a significant place for Jesus. Again, the home of his faithful ancestor Rahab the harlot. And it was nearby the place of his 40 days of temptation in the wilderness by Satan. And, and in, this, in this jewel in the barren wilderness, this contrast to the desert... There were also some other huge contrasts going on. So you've got this fancy desert oasis and two blind beggars. What a contrast. You've also got the disciples who were unmerciful, who were basically, even to, them, to each other, they were competing over what place they would get in the kingdom up against these two blind, humble beggars living right outside the city. I've been in Delhi, India, and I've been on the gated grounds of the palatial Royal Imperial Hotel. I didn't stay there. I just went and saw it. Someone told me, you have to see this place. But the contrast is, is crazy. You've got this gated palace 
this hotel and then outside on the streets you've got beggars living in just utter uh, destitution Jesus uses his his word behold with his disciples he says behold uh, excuse me Matthew uh, brings out this word behold and he wants to call attention to these blind beggars behold there were two blind men Remember, that's that whistle, that's the calling attention to something. Now, we're being called attention to two who would have easily been ignored, usually ignored, two blind men. Think of the people you ignore in in daily life, the people you walk right past. These would be those type of people. Two blind men. Blindness was not an uncommon thing in the Holy Land. It is still common in the Middle East. People were blinded by accidents. They were blinded by war. They were blinded at birth due to disease. These were probably not the only two blind men in Jericho. There were probably hundreds of blind people in the area because this was an area that produced a lot of balsam. And the balsam from a balsa tree was known to, to, uh, was thought to help eye defects of many kinds. And so they probably went there to, to get that something that we'll need to look into right now is that in Mark and in Luke Mark 10 and Luke 18 this, this parallel version of the story they only mention one blind man what's the deal with that? Mark even gives us um, the name of one of them his name is Bartimaeus you're probably familiar with that, that name blind Bartimaeus he was Bartimaeus the son of Timaeus you kind of have to wonder why he would be named in Mark Maybe it was because he, after he followed Jesus, he truly followed and, and was one of their brothers in Christ and he was name-checking someone they might have known. Whatever the case, Mark tells us that one of them was named Bartimaeus. There were two because, as we know, Matthew gives fuller details of how many people are present in certain situations. Now, these two blind men were sitting by the road. And the reason they would be sitting by the road is to beg for food or money, whatever they might get, whatever people mercifully might give them. And they hear that Jesus is passing by. And so what they do is they cry out to Jesus. The Greek word is kradzo. It literally means to scream. They were screaming at the top of their lungs to try to get Jesus' attention. This word that literally means to scream was used of all sorts of shouting and screaming. It was used of a woman's cries in childbirth, of the crowd shouting for Christ to be crucified, even of Jesus' cries to the Father from the cross. These men were shouting at the top of their lungs, hoping that Jesus would stop and pay attention to them. No one else was. They were physically blind, and what we see, though, is that they had spiritual sight. They're calling out for Jesus. And what do they call out? What do they cry out? What do they scream? Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The term Lord was often used as merely a respectful greeting. But what really showed their spiritual sight was their asking for mercy, first of all, and calling Jesus son of David. The word for mercy is Elios, and what it means is to have compassion, to have pity, to feel inwardly towards someone's plight. Mercy is a big major 
biblical theme. You, you remember the mercy seat in the Old Testament where propitiation was made, where uh, sacrifice was made for sin. The Bible tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. People experience a lot of judgment. What they really hunger and thirst for is mercy. You experience a lot of judgment from all areas of your life, but what you really need, what you really want is mercy. But what we find is that we often are not merciful. So we find mercy in short supply. What does mercy do? Mercy often gets confused with grace, but you see them side by side many times. Mercy alleviates the the consequences, the misery brought on by sin. Mercy is where God holds back what we deserve due to our sin. Mercy is compassion. Mercy is forbearance. Mercy is patience toward those who offend. It is special and immediate regard to that misery, which is the consequence of sin, that misery that we all live with on a daily basis. Synonyms might be uh, clemency, leniency, kindness. And what we see is that Jesus over and over again was kind to the unthankful and even to evil people. He was merciful. God is a merciful God. You look back in in history and you just go back as far as you can. Go back to the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve had sinned, God in mercy didn't kill them. God in mercy clothed them, provided for them, protected them. You think of Joseph and his brothers sold into slavery and left for dead and rises to the level of second ruler in Pharaoh's kingdom and his brothers come and bow down before him. And he showed them mercy. Think of David. King David. And after he had sinned with Bathsheba and killed, had Uriah killed, God was merciful toward him. You think of Peter denying Jesus, quitting the team, and Jesus mercifully bringing him back into the fold and recommissioning him for ministry. These two blind men must have figured that Jesus was the Messiah. And that if he was the Messiah, he would have mercy on them. And that he would heal them and that they would see. So their need drove them to faith. Maybe that's why the son of David is often associated with the needy. Those who know their need come to him. Son of David is what they call him. They scream it out, calling Jesus son of David. It's interesting that the first time Jesus was called that, he, in, we see it in, in Matthew 9, 27, that two other blind men call him that. Why are they screaming son of David? It points us back to the theme of the gospel of Matthew. It points us back to this gospel that we've been in for about four years now. And it really is going to remind us about what this thing is all about. Go back all the way to the very first verse of this gospel. Matthew 1.1. What is Matthew all about? Matthew is speaking to a primarily Jewish audience and he was showing them and all who would listen that Jesus is the sovereign, the Lord, the Messiah, the King. Verse 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. He's going to show that he is the King. Came from the line of David. 
He's literally saying, behold your king. Even run through Matthew and you've got chapters 1 through 4 and it's the king being introduced. His his genealogy and his infancy and and his baptism and preparing for ministry. Chapters 5 through 9, the preaching of the king. The Sermon on the Mount and then followed by more authoritative teaching and healing. Chapters 10 through 12, the, the king experiences opposition. He's preparing his disciples for the opposition that they would soon receive. Chapters 13 to 15, you see the kingdom of the king coming into a, a, full, a better picture. The two camps emerging. Those who believe, those who do not. Those who accept him, those who reject him. And then you see the, the teaching of the king in chapters 16 through 18. He's doing discipleship. He's t- showing what discipleship is all about. What it means to follow him. He's correcting misunderstandings. He's fielding questions. And then in, 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 the, in chapter 19, all the way through, what you see is the triumph of the king. You see it ultimately coming to his suffering and his death and the cross and the resurrection. If you boil Matthew down, it's basically the king appears and the king does his work and he ultimately reigns. How are you supposed to respond to a king? Like those two blind men did. You obey them, you listen to them, you trust them because he provides for you and he protects you and he There are all sorts of interesting motifs here regarding what a king does and how he should respond, but they are screaming, screaming out, Son of David, have mercy on us. What it meant they were doing is they were saying, Jesus, you're the king, you're the sovereign, you're the deliverer, we need you. We don't deserve you. We are at your mercy. They're physically blind, but they have better sight than many others. They saw spiritually what many others were blind to. That the one going up to Jerusalem to give his life as a ransom for many is the Messiah, the son of David, whose awesome power is used mercifully and compassionately for others, not to save himself, but for the sake of others, to benefit the many. Now in those days, there was an extensive expectation of the Messiah. It was intense age of the Messiah would be a time when the eyes of the blind would be opened there was this promised messianic deliverer from the line of David whose kingdom would have no end and he would heal the blind among many other things and so they were crying out they were asking for the gift of messianic mercy that would heal their blindness and asking for 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 Healing showed their humility. It showed how how humble they were. They admit they're unworthy for any help. They throw themselves at his mercy. That's how it is with people who come to Jesus and ask for mercy. They're humble. You can't be proud and ask for mercy. The proud don't ask for mercy. The proud admit their need. They admit they're unworthy to have help. And Jesus restores those who are dependent upon him. But what you see here are two men seeking mercy but there's a roadblock in the way because there's an unmerciful crowd telling them to shut up. You've got this crowd that withholds mercy in verse 31. The crowd rebuked them telling them to be silent. He just said stop it, shut up. They basically arrogantly withhold mercy they're like, they're like beating them up with their words. Get away from Jesus. Don't, 
Don't talk to Jesus. So they were rejected. They were basically pushed back. They were... The crowd was ruthless, if you think about it. Ruthless and heartless and arrogant. The crowds were like the disciples. They wanted to bask in his glory, but not practice what he taught. He already taught about mercy. They didn't want to show the same compassion that he showed. Isn't it easy for us to love to sing praises to God in church and then walk out the door and not want to show mercy to anyone? Isn't it easy to sing praises to God in church and then walk out the door and not want to show mercy to our brothers and sisters in Christ? We are so unmerciful at times. But the crowd tried to shut them down. But what did they do? I love this. They cried out all the more. So they just got louder. They just turned up the volume. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Crying out all the more. Literally, it's the word mega Mega, two, two in a row. It's more and more, greater and greater. They want even more to have Jesus hear their cries. We would say, that's annoying, that's rude, that's brash. God would say, that's full of faith. They wouldn't quit. F.F. F. Bruce said they refused to be bludgeoned into silence by the indifferent crowd. The crowd should have led them to Jesus. The crowd should have rolled out the red carpet to Jesus. The crowd should have paved the way for them to be in Jesus' presence, but they didn't. So it makes us very thankful that there is a Savior who freely gives mercy. Look at verse 32. Verse 32, and stopping. Jesus stopped. They, they stopped the traffic with their cries. Jesus stops... Now, by the way, he's the one who has the most reason to be unmerciful. Jesus, though, mercifully addresses their need in spite of the crowds being against it. He didn't care. He was going to do what he was going to do because he's the Lord. He's a merciful Savior. He's full of mercy. So he met their need, had compassion on them, had pity on them. By the way, the, the word pity here, it says that in verse 34, in pity he touched their eyes. It's that cool Greek word, splanknizomai. Go to a Greek restaurant. I'll have a splank nizomai. A splank nizomai. Kind of a funky sounding Greek word. But it, what it means is to feel inwardly. It's a great word. It means to feel inwardly. When you splank, when you splank nizomai, you, you, you feel it. You, you don't just, you just don't have a thought. It's not an intellectual thought. It is a deep feeling. So Jesus, in deep feeling, touched their eyes. He was moved with compassion, much like we saw in Matthew chapter 9. He saw the crowds, and they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he felt compassion for them. That's the idea. He stopped, and he called them out. He asked them a question. What do you want me to do for you? I love that. By the way, Mark chapter 10 tells us that he sent someone to tell them Take courage, he is calling for you. And what is, what Mark says that Bartimaeus basically threw his cloak down, jumped up and came to Jesus, this blind guy. There's just a legally blind Olympic archer, have you heard of him? A South Korean guy, Im Dong Hoang, I think that's how you say his last name. He's legally blind. And he, he's the, set the, the uh, 
the first world record of the Olympic Games this, this year. He scored a 699 out of 720 in the first round. He broke his own record. He's been to two other Olympics. This is no fluke. But this guy is legally blind. Um, he's the favorite to win a gold. And he re- here's what he says. He relies on distinguishing the colors of the bright colors on the target. He can't read the newspaper. Couldn't open up a Bible and read it. But he, he looks down about three quarters of a football length field away and distinguishes between the colors. Doing bullseyes. But Bartimaeus, this, this blind guy, gets up. Just jumps up and, 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 and can't come to, comes to Jesus. You know, the senses are, are, are keen when, when people are blind, and so he, he had to have known where he was, even though he couldn't see. And it says that, that Jesus touched their eyes, and key word here, immediately they recovered their sight. They regained their sight. What that tells us is they were once able to see. So not two guys that were born blind and didn't really experienced that before these are two people that experienced what it meant to see then lost it knew what they lost and really really wanted it back and so they had their sight restored and once they had seen now once they and then couldn't and now they could and so they were they were thankful so they followed jesus that's that's the end of the the end of it right here and they followed him We hear that, that um, from Mark and Luke that they glorified him. So we know they followed more, not just out of curiosity, but out of faith. They, they glorified Jesus as God. Now, what does God want us to do with all that? There, in every passage of Scripture we come to, there's something God wants us to know. You can't really go do it unless you know it, right? James says, be doers of the word, not merely hearers. So you've got to hear it first and then do it. So there are things that God wants us to know here. There's these two blind men and, and, and they, they ask for mercy. The crowd doesn't want them to have it. Jesus heals them. But what does God want us to do with that? Well, first, we should always want God's mercy. Just like those two blind guys. We personally should always seek mercy from God. That we should seek the mercy of the merciful king. We need mercy so badly. We're blind to it sometimes. You know, Jesus was a king. Not the kind of kings they knew. This king was so uncommon. First Peter chapter 2 tell us, what does 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10 tell us? All about how we, 1 Peter 2, uh, all about how we're a chosen race and a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then verse 10 says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You're people of the king, basically. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Titus, chapter 3, speaks of being ready for every good work, but before you can do the good work, you've got to get something that enables you to be ready. It says in verse 4, when the goodness and 
loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. See, mercy seekers are so desperate for mercy that they humbly seek Jesus. And as a result of that reception of mercy, his message of hope and mercy spreads to even more and more people because they are infectious with it. They're, they, they have it. People do a lot of things and um, they do it because they're afraid of real life. That's why some people are reading Fifty Shades of Grey. Some of you might be reading it. You know why? You're afraid of real life. You want to live in a fantasy world. Don't do it. A symptom of deeper problem. We're afraid to, to admit our real need. We want to get lost in someone else's fantasy world. We live in a fantasy world because real life scares us. We are afraid to seek the mercy of the merciful king. This is real life. It's not a fantasy world. And we've got to to marinate in this truth and relate to it and maybe relearn the basics some people have to admit the truth and just receive the Savior. You might have been pushing away God's mercy for years and not wanting to seek Him because you don't want to admit your true condition. You know your true condition. I know I mentioned last week that, you know, in some cultures, you don't have to um, convince people that they're a sinner, but in our culture, it seems like you have to talk people into the fact that they've sinned and they've fallen short of God's glory. But everyone knows deep down in their heart that they've done that. See, it is only through Jesus' service that we can receive healing. He came to give and to serve. I've seen miracles that God has done. I mean, just me getting saved in 1982 was a, a miracle. You, when you, if you got saved, uh, whenever it was, it was a miracle that God did. Some of you have been healed from diseases. Some of you have been, have been uh, given a fresh start in life. There are many things, but we see it happen all the time. I, I saw God do miracles this week. I saw people repent of sin. When someone repents of their sin, that is a miracle. I, I witnessed someone repenting of sin this week. A miracle. But they, they couldn't do it without seeking God's mercy. And now they thank God from the bottom of their heart. They were blind, and now they see. They were deceived, and now they're on the right track. Remember a story that Matthew Holbrook told once up here that when they were in the Dominican Republic and my, my daughter was there and she got really sick and they were supposed to leave on an airplane and she was in a hospital with IVs in her arm. She was dehydrated. And, and Pastor Ramon came in and boldly prayed that God would raise her up out of that bed of sickness, and, and he did. I don't think I've ever seen Matthew Holbrook cry except that day. He had tears in his eyes telling that story. Well, there hasn't been a day that I haven't thought about how bold Ramon was, and I have been able to encourage people to pray boldly. Don't just pray kind of like, in general, be really specific and bold as you seek God's mercy. Hebrews 4 tells us that we, that we who, are, who are saved by grace through faith in Christ can come boldly to God's throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
seek God's mercy. We always should seek God's mercy every day. You know that God, mercy's not something you get once and say, okay, I got it, put it in my pocket, and now what else can I get? It's not like an Easter egg hunt. Mercy is something you get, and it continues to be an operation in your life all the way through your life. God continues to show you mercy every moment of every day. Second thing that God wants us to do is that we should always repent when we've been merciless. What the crowd didn't do. The crowd was left to sit there unmercifully. We should always repent whenever we've been merciless. We should love to repent all the time of our sins. 1 John 1 tells us if we say we have not sinned, we are liars and we're calling God a liar. If we say we haven't sinned, there's no truth in us. So we should always want to repent whenever we've been merciless. But sometimes we don't really care about other people. Sometimes we, we don't care. We need new hearts. I'm going to ask God to implant this pacemaker in us that sensitizes us to the needs of others. If you're not merciful, you're not walking with Jesus. If you're merciless, then you've forgotten all about the mercy that God has shown you. The merciless aren't walking with Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, those, those who see themselves as spiritually bankrupt and who mourn. That's the person who mourns over their sin and, and they're humble because, and they, and they hunger after, and thirst after righteousness because they want Christ's righteousness and they're merciful because they've received mercy. The Beatitudes are all a, a, a description of the follower of Christ. James chapter 2 explains mercy a bit judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy mercy triumphs over judgment James 4 tells us that the wisdom from above verse 4 uh, excuse me James 3 chapter 7 uh, verse 17 the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable then gentle open to reason full of mercy and good fruits we should always repent when we've been merciless so here's these uh, self-seeking, throne-seeking disciples of Jesus seeing him interact with two blind men who, is see who are seeking the king on his throne. We should always repent when we've been merciless. Last thing, we should show mercy. We should always show as much mercy as we can to as many people as we can, as often as we can. Micah 6.8 says, um, this is what God has shown us, that, that we are to do justly and to love kindness, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. But we must make sure that our version of mercy matches God's. Sometimes it's, I think it's easy to feel like doing something and go, well, I'm merciful because I felt it. You're not merciful until you do it. Let me boil it down. Mercy is starts with an attitude and leads to an action. If you just feel like doing something merciful, you had a thought, you had a feeling, and if you let it pass, you're not merciful. You're only merciful if you actually do the thing that shows mercy. 
For example, meeting physical needs. Isaiah 58 talks about it, so does Matthew 25. Feeding the hungry, that's merciful. That, 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 that can stem from a merciful heart. Um, giving drink to the thirsty. Clothing the naked. Sheltering the homeless. Visiting the sick. Visiting prisoners. You know, even going to a funeral can be an act of mercy. You say, I don't really want to go. Who does? I don't want to go to a funeral. But you stop what you're doing and you put on nicer clothes than you had on and you go to honor the memory of the one who died and to comfort their family, to be there physically present. Even that could be an act of mercy because you make an action towards the good of someone else who's in misery. And then the spiritual needs, uh, teaching the ignorant and counseling the doubting and admonishing the unruly and comforting the sorrowful and forgiving offenses and bearing wrongs patiently and praying for others. Those are all, those are all mercy ministries. So why would Jesus, a couple weeks from his death, stop to help two blind men? Why would he do that? I mean, he was on to something much bigger, wasn't he? Because that act, this act, showed, once again, he's the Messiah. It proved, once again, that he's the Messiah. And it it opened up a beautiful picture that these self-seeking, throne-seeking disciples would never forget. He's never too busy to help those in need. He's never too busy to ignore the needs. This would be one of those living object lessons that they would never forget. This is one of the most touchingly beautiful pictures of how merciful and how compassionate God is in all the Bible. And it leads us to humble ourselves in God's presence and, and what does he do? He lifts us up out of selfish ambition and self-pity so that we might reach into places where sin has infected and we shine the light of the gospel. Loving people that sin has ravished and embracing them with grace and acceptance. If you're going to serve God's purposes in this generation, you have got to be merciful. And a whole group of merciful people makes a merciful church. And a merciful church makes disciples of Christ, the merciful one. The biggest issue about what we're looking at today was that Jesus came to heal, heal not just physical blindness, but spiritual blindness. We are now coming to the table to, to, to eat of the bread and drink of the cup, remembering Christ on the cross, a, a display of mercy beyond comparison. In ancient Rome, gladiators would fight and they would fight to the death for the, for the thrill of the crowd. And, and, and there was the coup de grace, literally French for, for the blow of mercy, where you would put your opponent out of his mercy by killing him. Every once in a while, there'd be a gladiator that would be so touched, he would actually show greater mercy and let them live. But what did Jesus do? Jesus took the blow of mercy and allowed himself to be killed so that we might live. Only God would do that. 